0: All right. This morning, we are beginning a brand new series called True Grit. I'm excited about this one. You know, when I was a small boy, I was horribly afraid of thunderstorms. and, And when I heard thunder outside, I'm talking about when I was like three, four years old, when I would hear thunder outside, I would immediately head inside, indoors. I was very afraid of thunder because for me, I associated thunder with the rain and the storm. So I knew it was coming. And so I would just head inside. And as I think about that, there's something else that sounds a lot like thunder to me. And that would be fireworks. So if I I didn't like fireworks because to me, at three and four years old, it reminded me of thunder, which I thought was a storm. And so I would head inside. So I can't imagine all the really cool things as a a, a little boy that I missed. Uh, with fireworks, because I ran inside, and I I never was outside to see them, and I so I didn't get to see that, and I because I was afraid of that, I missed out on that. How many memories do I not have? All because I wasn't willing, as a four-year-old, <laughs> to face that fear. Now, let me give you some information about my family. My family, I come from Oklahoma both sides of my family, mom's side and dad's side, they uh, were original homesteaders who got their land from the Oklahoma land rush. Pretty cool to me. They ran in the land rush. They staked their claim in the land rush and they were homesteaders. They built a life. And so they were out there on the Oklahoma prairie and they just kind of were prairie tough. It was the old west And they were prairie tough on both sides of my family in Oklahoma. Um, And so with that information, let me tell you what happened to me. So I'm about four years old. And for some reason, I'm staying uh, for a week or two weeks with my one set of my grandparents in Oklahoma, prairie tough grandparents. And um, my grandmother got the idea that um, tough grandma, she's going to help me over my fear of storms. And so one afternoon, we're all outside um, and, uh, in Oklahoma, and it begins to thunder, and sure enough, it begins to rain. And everybody goes inside, except my grandmother wouldn't let me. She left me outside in the rain, in the storm, and made me stay outside in the storm. And it just kind of was her prairie tough love, trying to help me get over uh, my fear of storms. Um, I'm not sure that was the best way to do it because I'm not sure it worked. I'll be honest with you. I'm pretty sure I'm still scarred from that experience today. I, I, I think it was not the greatest way to do that, but it was just kind of prairie tough love for many of us. When things get tough, we might have this little voice inside that says, Hey, give up. That's too tough. Or at least we might find another reason in our own lives to say, you know what? I'm not going to follow through with this. I'm just going to put this on the back burner. When things get uncomfortable, we can make ourselves feel better by saying a phrase like this. Well, it must, maybe it just wasn't meant to be, right? We've all said that. Maybe it just wasn't meant to be. And so we move on. We leave that. We move on. But how many dreams... Were never reached because we failed to hang around and go around that next corner, or we failed to climb that next difficult mountain because things got tough. It was too difficult. And so it seemed more simple to just put it on the back burner and to quit. Until one day we look at our lives and we realize this, we've never followed through on much of anything. Now, those scenarios may not fit everyone in this room, but I bet this next question I ask will hit something for all of us. Here's the question. Do you have any regrets in life? Now, the answer obviously is yes, every one of us. Of course we do. We all have some regret somewhere in our life. We all have things that we look back on in our lives and we say, man, I think, uh, man, I wish I had not done that. I wish I had not said that. I wish I had not gone there. We all have regrets of action, things we wish we didn't do. And those regrets pretty much get most of our attention, most of our focus, because we've all got those kind of action-oriented regrets, and they hurt. But often, the regret that might hurt more, the one that certainly lingers longer possibly, is that regret maybe we never fully get over. It's a regret of inaction. That regret that says it's about something we didn't do, something we didn't say we should have said, somewhere we didn't go that we really should have gone. And usually we didn't do whatever that was, because it possibly was too hard, or too uncomfortable, or too scary, or maybe it was just too involved, and so we just let it ride on the back burner. For just a few minutes uh, this morning, I want to talk to Christ followers, so let me say this. If you are not yet a Christ follower, everything we say over these next few minutes— can still be encouraging and can be good information for you. But I want to to tell you, I'm going to be speaking specifically to people who have decided to follow Jesus. And so if you have not done that yet, you have a great opportunity. Please don't leave because you're going to get to peek behind the curtain of what uh, what it is, some of what it is like to follow Jesus. So, almost you get information before you buy. You get a try before you buy. So, please don't leave. Just take this opportunity to kind of peek behind the curtain. We want you to do that. But if you're a Christ follower this morning, here's my question What purpose were you created for? For what purpose? I mean, that's a big question, right? That, that's a huge question here's what I was taught growing up, or at least this is what was implied or modeled to me, maybe by some pastors or teachers. Here's what, this is what I gathered as a young man. The purpose for being a Christian is, number one, to not make God mad. So there's a whole bunch of things we can't do. Number one, don't do those things. Number two, the purpose For a Christian, is then to check some boxes that say, these are things you must do to make God happy. So please make sure you get all of these boxes checked. That's the second thing. And the third thing would be to then look forward to the day, one day, where you will get to spend your eternity with a real God in heaven. And that will be the day that you get to look at everybody else and say, see, I told you you should have (laughs) listened. Now, That's what I gathered as a young man, that that was the threefold purpose of being a believer, being a Christian. But I'm pretty sure now in my life, as I look back, that was all wrong. That was not right. Because our purpose, our calling is so much more than just things we should not do. It's so much more than running away from sin and looking forward to an eternity with God in heaven. You see, my friends, you were created to chase after your God-given direction. So what is your purpose? That's my question. We are to actually strive to arrive at our God-given opportunity. So I need to ask the question, so what is your purpose. Chasing after those things that God places in our path, we could call that your giant. The giant that you are to chase after, your God-given giant, that you're supposed to chase after. And you know what? That's why we use the word giant, because it's not always easy. A giant, that can be pretty big, right? A giant It should be pretty big. And it's probably pretty scary to chase after that giant. But you know what they say? No guts, no... Right. No guts, no glory. But I don't want to be confusing, because when I say no guts, no glory in this scenario, in this context, I'm I'm not saying that about God. Because it is true, what I believe in the new covenant tells us that God is going to get his glory, no matter my choices, God is going to get his glory. He's not going to miss that, I promise you. So when I say no guts, no glory, here's what I'm really saying. Well, it's, it's this. We will miss out on the privilege of being part of God's great big story we will miss out on the opportunity for our lives to be a part of giving God glory. Because I know this, he will get 100% of the glory that he is due is going to happen. But if I don't play a part in it, then I don't get to be a part of it. Consider the words of Jesus recorded by one of the disciples who was closest to him, one of a handful. Here's what he said that Jesus says, and I quote, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me, Jesus saying, will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. And what Jesus said actually happened. In spite of the most severe persecution, in spite of horrible torture, in spite of death, These early followers of the way of Jesus did amazing things. They conquered incredible giants. They took on Rome, who had conquered the world. And in doing so, they were a part of seeing their world changed. How many people Here this morning, including me, how many of us can say that we have truly been a part of seeing the world change? Well, they sure did. There are so many examples for us in Scripture. We're going to be talking about some of those in this series. Changes that were brought about, and all of those changes glorified God. But it happened because those followers of Jesus persevered. They made it through tough times, but it wasn't easy, and it wasn't comfortable, and it certainly wasn't without adversity and conflict. But you know, as I think about it, following Jesus was never meant to be safe and civilized. Even though today, that's what we have been led to believe, that following Jesus is the safest place you can be, right? We've even heard people say that. The safest place to be is right in the middle of God's will for your life. We may have even told somebody that, but it's not true. From the very start, following Jesus was dangerous, and it was uncivilized, and it was life-threatening. In fact, it's only because that some believers in Jesus have persevered through that, that we have the luxury today, the unfortunate luxury today, to say that following Jesus is easy and the safest place you can be is in the middle of God's will for your life, even though that is untrue. Over and over in Scripture, we have examples of God sending people out to do really difficult things. Think about it. God sent a teenage boy, a shepherd named David, to battle a literal real life giant about nine feet tall. What were the odds that this little teenage boy could defeat and battle Goliath? What are the odds? You can go read it for yourself. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Go read that, but I promise you this spoiler alert the odds were not in David's favor. But at that time, God sent David to chase, literally, after that giant, to confront that giant. And that was a big giant. And that was David's purpose at that time. If you're anything like me, when we read about those people, those heroes of the Old Covenant, we have a tendency to kind of watch from the bleachers and to kind of cheer them on. We read about these incredible feats. We applaud them. We're excited by those stories. We, we think it's amazing. And we see those people chase after whatever it is for them, their God-appointed giant. They chase after that giant. And we see those people as very special and truly They are. We applaud David. We applaud Gideon. We applaud Elijah. We could go on and on and on. We applaud these people and we look at the things they did. But here's what we fail to recognize. They are no different than we are. They are like us. They too were created for a purpose. So are you and so am I. They were created to face and then to chase after that figurative giant that God had in their lives or in the case of David a literal giant but we're created to do the very same thing in the old covenant for the most part those heroes of the faith when we read those stories guess what we read those stories and those heroes of the faith they win whatever that battle is against that giant so often because of God David kills that giant because of God Elijah calls down fire from heaven Because of God, Gideon defeats an army of maybe more than hundreds of thousands of men. He defeats them with only 300 men. But I want you to know this, that is not always the case. We don't always win. And yet, that is still part of God's plan, where God is going to get all of the glory. And if you want evidence, we don't have to go any further than the new covenant to find evidence of this. It is not the outcome that is so important. That's not the important thing. You see, some are going to win against their giant. God already knows this, but he also already knows many won't win against that giant that God has for them but that's not what's so important. It's not winning against the giant. No, 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 no. Those with true grit are not set apart based upon the outcome of that battle. No, 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 no. What sets them apart is the true grit to chase after their giant, to give it their all, and to not give up. Even when giving up seems like the rational thing to do, the logical thing to do, because that giant that God has placed in their path, maybe it just is like, no, 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 God has closed that door. It's easier to say that. You see, grit demands that we take hold of a God-sized task and we keep holding on. And when God sends you on a task, it is that holding on that brings God the glory, not the win. It's the holding on. David told King Saul that he didn't fear Goliath. But you know what? I bet somewhere deep inside there was a little fear. And I know that Gideon was afraid. When God said, I want you to take these 300 to battle those hundreds of thousands, I know what Gideon thought, we're told. He thought it was stupid. He thought it was crazy. He had fear, just like you have fear, whatever that task is for you. They had doubts, just like I have doubts. But the difference is, with true grit, they don't allow those fears and doubts to stop them. They scoop up those fears and those doubts, and they take them with them, and they go face them all the way to their God-created purpose. True grit can be summarized this way, doing the best you can with what you have where you are doing the best you can with what you have where you are. It is not a guarantee of success. It is doing the best you can with what you have where you are. So I ask again, what is your God-created purpose? What is the giant that is in your path right now? See, sometimes in our Western world, that is not our focus. You know what we like to focus on? In our Western world, we often uh, place more value on learning as opposed to doing. We equate spiritual maturity with study and knowledge. But what we find in the New Covenant, most often, there are some exceptions, but most often in the New Covenant, we find spiritual maturity is not deep Bible study and it's not the accumulation of knowledge. No, 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 no. Here's what we see most often. Spiritual maturity is about making the most, making the best of every opportunity, every giant that God sends your way. Spiritual maturity, we find, is a stewardship. It is a management. Spiritual maturity is being a good manager of all of your abilities. Spiritual maturity is being a good manager of the gifts that God has placed in your life. Uh, Being a good manager of the money that God funnels through your life. Being a good manager of the time that God has given you in this day. Being a good manager of your energy. But spiritual maturity also means this, being a good manager of opportunity. We are to be good stewards of every single opportunity that God sends our way, regardless of the odds. In other words, the odds may be against us that this will be a winning endeavor. That's not what's important. What's important is the opportunity that is placed in front of us, not the outcome. It's being a good steward of that opportunity, seizing that moment, holding on. And this series is going to encourage us to uh, prepare to be good stewards uh, of these God-given opportunities. It's going to help when God says, hey, Harley, Harley, listen, go chase that giant, Harley. That's what I have for you right now, Harley. Go chase that giant. It's going to help us. And some of what we teach will be more natural to some personality types than others. While others, when we hear what we're going to be talking about in this series, it will be as unnatural for us and as clumsy for us as trying to write with the wrong hand. You know what I'm saying? And I know this because I feel personally some tension in my own life related to what we're going to be talking about in this series. You know why? Because there are some opportunities out there. I know this. And there's going to be some chances where God says, Harley, I want you to show me true grit. Hold on, Harley. Hold on, no matter the outcome. And there are some opportunities I know they're going to happen. And I don't want to hold on. I don't want to go through that. I don't want that opportunity, God. So this series gives me some tension. No matter where you are starting from, emotionally, physically, relationally, or spiritually, I truly believe that this series will help you as it will help me to get us closer to where God wants us to go. So what is your God-given purpose right now? That might be a scary question. Probably is a scary question. But the principles that we're going to talk to you about can help you rewrite the story of your life. All you have to do is turn the page and start a new chapter. At this point, it doesn't matter what has happened before. You can start a new chapter right now. When the odds are stacked against us, you know what? That seems to be God's favorite scenario. It's like, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) He seems to love it when the odds are stacked against us. It seems to be the moments when God gets the most glory. When you look through history and you look through scripture, it seems as though God might be in the resume building business. which he is doing from our past experience. Scripture tells us that he does this not to make us look good, but he does this to make him look good, to bring him glory. Somehow God uses our bad experiences and he uses our good experiences to prepare us for future opportunities to face future giants. Let me use this as an example. I'm going to be reading from uh, a book uh, of Acts. So this is kind of, this is a uh, nonfiction. This is real life stuff. It was recorded by uh, a doctor. His name was Luke. And, and he was around for these travels. Listen to what he said. He traveled with them. He says, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill. That is not hyperbole. Saul wanted these people dead, and he was eager to be a part of their death eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. That is, anyone who followed the way of Jesus. They were Christ's followers. Any that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Paul. Here, Saul, as we know him here, he thought he really did. He thought he was being good. He thought he was doing exactly what God would have him do. But the truth is, Paul was really bad. He was really good at being really bad. Let's just say Paul had a reputation. Luke describes it more. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm persecuting followers of you. Jesus says, no, 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 you're persecuting me. Now get up, he says, Jesus says to Paul, to Saul, he says, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul, they stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. You see, Paul actually saw Jesus and it blinded him. Verse eight, Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes this time, he, it says he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand, helpless by the hand, they led him to Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So he's losing all of his strength, all of his motivation to live, all of his willpower. He's just wilting away. His life has suddenly changed all while God has a purpose, (laughs) and God has a plan. And at this very moment, Saul is getting ready to be the giant in the way of somebody else. And here we go, verse 10. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. This guy, Ananias, he had no idea of the giant that God is placing in his path. Here's what happened. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. And he said, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. I absolutely love this. God is into the specifics. (laughs) There is no question where Ananias, where his giant is located, (laughs) because God gave him the address On straight street. And that street still exists today (laughs) over there. It does. I promise. God gave him the address. And he said, when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying right now. In other words, right now, while you and I are talking Ananias at the very same time, Paul at this simultaneously is praying to me. And guess what? I'm in that Completely too. I'm completely in response to him and I'm completely in response to you all at the same time. Blows my mind. Interesting, right? Verse 12. God says, I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias. Uh, By the way, that's you, dude. And he's coming to lay hands on him so that he can see again. Gulp. Ananias must have responded. Verse 13. But but, but, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about this guy, about all the terrible things this man does to believers in Jerusalem. And now he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Uh, By the way, God, I, I call upon your name. Um, God, don't you know who this guy is? I don't know if you realize it or not, God, but this is a pretty big giant. Do you know, God, that the odds are against me here? He's probably just pretending. He's probably doing all of this just to lay a trap so he can catch more believers. Someone like me, God. God, this is a bad idea. This is way too hard. I don't think this is meant to be. God, I think you're closing this door. You know what you say, God, when you close the door, he's going to open another or open a window. God, I'm looking for the window. God, I I don't see a window. And, and God, the door's still open. And I just got to wonder why. Verse 15, but the Lord said, Go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to all the people of Israel. And then he ends with this this listen to this, verse 16. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In all of this, God is going to get the full credit god doesn't want partial credit he doesn't want a little bit of glory just a piece of glory he wants no 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 he doesn't want honorable mention what has happened what is happening and what will happen will ultimately always ultimately always bring god the glory and he isn't interested in sharing glory with ananias He's not interested in sharing glory with Saul, this guy, Paul. No, 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 no. And he's not interested in sharing his glory with us. Now, verse 17. So Ananias went and he found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus. Who appeared to you on the road has, I have no idea why, has sent me to you. And he said, so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what happened instantly. Something like scales. Physically, they were watching. They, something fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. And I can only imagine Ananias is like, oh man, here we go. Now the giant can see me. But here's what happened. Then he got up, Saul got up, and he was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and he regained his strength. Now think with me for a moment. What are the odds? In this scenario, what are the odds that this guy named Saul would have really been waiting to kill Ananias? The odds are high because that's all he had done was to kill and to enslave believers. So, what are the odds? Pretty high. What are the odds that Saul, the Christian hunter, would become Saul the Christian? Those odds are pretty low. Pretty low. But you know what? Jesus, he will defy all odds, and Jesus will get the glory no matter the story. And it's happening here. Verse 19, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately, immediately, so the first thing that Saul did was not sit down and begin to study. Nothing wrong with study, but this isn't the first thing Paul did. He immediately began preaching, speaking about Jesus. There's not a Paul saying, oh, listen, I see this opportunity. I tell you what. God and Ananias and other followers of Jesus that I used to kill and maim. Yes, you guys. um, Listen, I'm going to take this opportunity, and I promise you, I'm going to go pray about it. I'm going to pray about it and pray about it and see if this is what God has for my life. I'm going to go pray about this, and I'll get back with you. No, no. He didn't say, hey, guys, listen, I'm going to go study up a little bit first, and once I feel like I have enough knowledge here, uh, I'll get back with you, and then, hey, let's go do this thing. Let's do it. Let's get out there. Yeah. Woo! But let me go study first. Let me go catch up. Now, now, Saul immediately gets to work on now his giant that God has placed in his path. And what was that giant? He was now sent, here we have, in the synagogues. And Paul was saying, he, Jesus, is indeed the son of God. And all who heard him, it's recorded in verse 21, were amazed. Here's what they began to say to each other. Hey, listen, isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they ask. And didn't he come here to Damascus, this town, to arrest them and to take them back in chains to the leading priests? And friends, I want you to know this. Jesus will defy all the odds. Maybe against all odds is exactly right where God wants us to be, against all odds. Because that's where we can experience a new dimension of being a part of seeing God get all of his glory. No matter what the outcome. Listen, I'm not saying he gets the glory in the story only if you win. No, 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 no No matter the outcome, no matter how you feel, no matter the odds, maybe that is us experiencing this new dimension of God getting all the glory. And I feel the tension in that statement. Because placing our lives into the hands of God is scary. Because I don't know what the next giant God has for me. I don't know what it is. Verse 22. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs. Get this. Underline this in your mind. That Jesus was indeed. The Messiah. And I want you to know this, friends, at the end of the day, at the end of every single day of your life, that is all that matters. I promise you this all that matters. Jesus was, is indeed the Messiah. And that's all that matters. Verse 23 After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him, to kill Saul. Verse 24, they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. What are the odds that they are going to find Paul with all the people that they have There's many, many, many more of them than there are believers than there are of Paul or any of the believers. There are many more. What are the odds if they are watching for him day and night? What are the odds that they're going to find him, right? Pretty high. But Saul, we're told by Luke, but Saul was told about their plot. Now think with me. What are the odds that Saul finds out about their plan? not very likely, but he does. Verse 25. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Picture, picture that. During the night, some of them crammed him into a basket. They snuck him through a window or a crack or some, some kind of gap in the wall, and they, they lowered him out of the city, out of that fortress wall. They lowered him in a basket, crammed in a basket out of the wall. Maybe against all the odds is right where God wants us so that we can experience a new dimension of God getting all the glory no matter what the outcome is. And I, too, feel the tension of that statement. So, let's hit pause. It is not always going to work out the way I want it to work out when I face my giants. And that, my friend, is scary. You see, this did not exactly turn out the way Paul imagined, I quite believe. This did not quite look like a success to Paul in his eyes, I believe. I mean, Paul almost died. Number one, they wanted to murder him. He finds himself in the very position that he was in of of power and being able to take people's lives and put them in chains. And now, Paul, this doesn't sound much like a success. Doesn't sound like a winning plan, God. And now we find Paul having to sneak out of town and run away. That doesn't sound much like a victory by anybody's standard. You see, Paul just days earlier left Jerusalem with papers that gave him authority from the high priest to go arrest people. And to be really, really mean and horrible and bad to people who were following Jesus. He left Jerusalem with that as a powerful man in the whole country. He was powerful. And now Paul is being crammed into a basket alone and lowered out of the city walls. Alone, but not alone. Wait, what? How was Paul alone and not alone? I am so glad you asked. <laughs> I'm going to put on my nerd hat. So hang in here with me, please. I'm going to nerd out on you just a bit. I, Harley, am stuck in three dimensions of space, 3D, you've heard that, three dimensions of space, and I am stuck in one dimension of time. At this very moment, this spot where I am seated, I'm stuck here in this spot, uh, more so than you would actually even think. I am stuck in this space. I can't be over there. I am stuck right here in this space. And I am stuck in this moment of time. Space in this moment of time. You see, time is linear, right? Here's how we describe that. Time goes forward, doesn't it? There's the future. And then time is behind us, right? That's the past. And then we have right now, the moment right now. And that's where I'm stuck right now, because I can't go forward. I don't have a DeLorean. I can't go forward. I can't go backward. Still, I have no DeLorean. I can't get backwards. I am stuck right now. I only have access to one single dimension of time. Not forward, not the future, not the past. It is right now, this moment now, and this moment now, and this moment now. That's all I have. But God is different. He is not bound by right now. God is omnidimensional which means he he is not bound by any single dimension. Not the three dimensions of space and not any of the dimensions of time. He is everywhere spatially and he is everywhere regarded to time all the time. This is mind-blowing for me. Let me show you how God kind of sets us up for this. At creation, we love going back to the creation story. It answers so many things in life. Listen to this. God gives us a hint about this, Genesis chapter one, verse two. He says, "The earth was without form." so He has not yet created this, all this, right? And now here's what you need to understand. That word that translates "form also means more, without form. And in chaos. That's how it translates. Without form and in confusion. That's how it translates. So the earth was without form and in chaos. It was without form and in confusion. And he goes on, he says, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Over the face of the deep. We're going to come back to that. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here's what this is picturing. All right. We talk about how the Bible gives us word pictures. It uses words to give us information, but it also describes a picture. Here's the picture that God is describing. Picture this. God is hovering over all the chaos. Oh, I love this. He's hovering over all the chaos. And now listen to me, please listen to this. He did it then, and he still hovers over your chaos today. He hovers over every chaotic, every confusing situation today, yours and mine today. And out of that chaos that he's hovering over in your life. And out of that confusion that he's hovering over in your life, he wants to create order and beauty, no matter the outcome of your chaos. Wow. Now listen to this. It gets, it gets more. Let's take one more step further into nerddom. It said over the face, over the surface of the waters, right? This phrase involves a Hebrew word called panim. That word is a multi-dimensional word. So listen to how it describes God. Here's what this word means. We translate it over the face, over the surface of waters. Listen to the depth of meaning, the picture that God is creating by using that specific Hebrew word in this combination of words. Here's what it means. It is a multi-denominational multi-denomin- uh, note. It is a multidimensional word. It means that God is personally present over, at the same time under at the same time before, at the same time after, and in front of, and behind, and above, and below, all at the same time. Consider what this word means regarding time. Another step deeper into nerddom. Come with me, come with me. A split second before something happens, And a split second after something happens, God is there in both places at the same time, before and after. He's already there. We can't comprehend this. Consider this in regard to space. At this moment, God is right in front of you, and he's right in back of you. At this very moment, at the same time, he is above you, and he is below you. God is there. The psalmist describes God's presence this way. Psalm 139.5, the message paraphrases it and says, I look behind me, God, and you're there. Then up ahead. You're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. That's the paraphrase. Listen to how it's uh, in, uh, interpreted from the New American Standard Bible. Same verse. It says, You have encircled me behind and in front. In other words, all at the same time, God, you are hovering right now all around me all the time in the future, in the past, and right now. The implication, here's what this means. You can hold on when the odds are against you because you are never truly alone. And I know this doesn't ease the tension, (laughs) not completely anyway, but it does help us frame the circumstance. One more step into nerddom. Let's put this in scientific terms. The shortest possible amount of time is 10 to the negative 43rd seconds. It is called Planck time. Any shorter amount of time and quantum mechanics can't seem to tell whether uh, events are happening simultaneously. All right, that's the shortest amount of time possible. That's what we call the split second the shortest possible distance. So now let's look at space. The shortest possible distance is 1.6 to 10 and the negative 35th meters. And that's called Planck length. Any shorter distance, meaning you chop that inch down into, to like, Let's go meters. Chop the, chop the meter into, you know, centimeters, millimeters. You keep going smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and you get to this one point of length that they can measure with quantum mechanics, and they can't go any shorter than that with quantum mechanics, because then they can't tell whether you're here or there. That's the limitation of quantum mechanics at this point. And here's what I want you to know that's where God comes in. He is even in that space that according to quantum mechanics doesn't exist. God is there right now. To the finite humans, that's all of us. We're on the inside of this thing called earth and our universe, and we're looking out, and it seems as though Time is endless that it goes on and on and on and on, and we call it eternity. It's just on infinitely forever. That's the way it seems to us. And it seems like space, it goes on infinitely outside the universe. It just goes on and on and on and on, and it never ends as we look into that giant sky filled with stars and suns and planets. It just goes on and on. To us, it looks infinite. But we're on the inside looking out. God is on the outside of all of that. And God is looking in. (laughs) And so here we have. Here we have a God. With no dimensional limitations. None at all. God has no limitations not a bit because God is on the outside of those dimensions and he's looking in and he's saying time is finite because he and only he is infinite and space to him is finite because he created it and only he is infinite and that's why I'm sorry I skipped around on you McKinley but that's why that's why we read in 2 Peter 3, 8, that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. All of this to say this, God is around us all the time. So I'm backing out of the nerddom. God is around us all the time. He is right in front of us and he is right after us in time. He's right ahead of us and he's right behind us. He's also above us and he's under us all at the same time. God has no zero, not a bit, no dimensional limitations. You see that God was at that moment when David was picking up the stones to kill Goliath. God was in that moment. And at the very same time that God was in that moment, he was at that same time in the moment where Goliath was already dead. He was in that moment too, all at the same time. And since Jesus is God, let us be reassured by what he has to say about time and space. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says, I, he's God, I am with you always. Where? Above and below, beside, in front, and back, over and under, behind all. I am with you always, even to the end of what you call the age. God is around us, all around us all the time, right before and right after, ahead and behind, above and under. God has no dimensional limitations. So here's where we're landing today. Back to our question. What is it that you were created for? Let me ask it another way. What is the giant that God wants you to chase right now? When facing that giant, you can face it with true grit. No matter the outcome, that's not what true grit is about. No matter the outcome, you can hold on because. God is with you. God is all around you. He, had, he already knows the outcome. He's there. He already knows the outcome. Win or lose. He's there. He's all around you in space. He's all around you in time. So you can face that giant and you can hold on. You see, Paul's life path, it was very wrong. Before he began a new path, a new chapter of following Jesus. And Paul held on very tightly to the wrong thing. But Paul was mature enough to change directions and to do something different when God gave him that opportunity. And what Paul did because we're not waving the flag of Paul here. What Paul did, he did only because of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and it was all for God's glory alone. The more we grow, the more we mature, the deeper we go with God, the bigger our God gets. And the bigger our God gets, the smaller our giants become. How big is your God? Is he just your mind-sized God that you imagine? Do you have God located in this heavenly place with only a view of things happening down on earth? Is that your God? Have you put limitations dimensionally, spatially, and with, in regard to time and the future and the past and right now? So here's what we're asking. To develop true grit. Enough grit to hold on when the odds are against us or when we feel alone or frightened or scared. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to stop, drop, and roll. (laughs) Jimmy, this is different than what we teach with fire safety. Here's what I want you to do. I I want you to stop during your week several times. And so use something to give you a visual or an auditory signal to, hey, I need to stop in this moment and think about something else. So stick a sticky note somewhere where you'll see it during the day, on your computer, at your workstation, somewhere. Or put a silent reminder on your your phone so it will kind of vibrate or something at different times during the day. Notifying you need to stop in that moment. Here's what we want you to do when you stop. We then want you to drop yourself a reminder. We want you to use that moment to stop and then drop yourself a reminder and to think in that moment. Remember, God is all around the good things in your life at this moment. He's all around those good things. And at this moment, God is also all around any chaos in your life right now at this moment. So stop. Drop yourself a reminder. Remember, God is all around you, in front of you, behind you, over you, under you, ahead of you in time, behind you in time, in this moment. He's all around you all the time. And then here's what we want you to do. Then roll with it. No matter what's going on in that moment, no matter what the odds are in that moment, if God led you there to that moment, I want you to remember, hold on, because God is with you. Keep on trucking, brother. God is with you. And into that next moment with the knowledge that God has already been there. When you were in this moment, God has already been to the next moment. He's with you. He's been there. He knows. God is already there waiting on you to help, perhaps, Some of you could memorize Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6 or write them down where you can see them and and see them and read those and remember. Write that verse down. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6. I believe truly God is in the resume building business by using your past experience, whatever it is, good or bad, and using your experience right now in this very moment to prepare you for future something. So you need to hold on. Don't give up. Don't let go. That is part of true grit. And I promise you, it's a cliffhanger of a story, but the story isn't over. Let's pray. God, when I'm following you, the odds sometimes feel against me. And I'm asking you, God, will you give me the grit to hold on and not quit? Because, God, you are not only in this moment of time, you are already ahead of me at that moment. And it's already been done and finished. You're there. God, when I'm following you, I sometimes feel alone. And give me the grit to hold on and not quit because you are with me right now. You're above me and under me. You're in front of me and behind me. So how can I feel alone, God, when you are everywhere around me? Oh, God, I want to have true grit. I want to model that for my family and my friends and my coworkers. I want to hold on and not give up no matter what the outcome might be. I want to be part of bringing glory through having the true grit to hang on and not give up, God, because you are with me. And God, I pray these things in the name of Jesus, my Savior, my Messiah. May it be so. Amen.